This week on New Mexico in Focus, confronting the rising threat of violence against New Mexico's Asian American Pacific Islander communities. The feeling of sorrow, the feeling of grief, the, the feeling of pain was just overwhelming. Plus the importance of representation in local media with Albuquerque's first African-American general manager. New Mexico in Focus starts now. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm your host, Gene Grant. Healthcare has definitely been the story of the last year, but amidst all the COVID-19 pandemic and public health response, many may have missed the news that the University of New Mexico Hospital is opening the state's first ever comprehensive stroke center. Ahead this week, we find out more about what this means for patients across New Mexico. And a little later, we'll introduce you to Lori Walden, the general manager and president of KOAT-TV, as she and I discuss why now is the time to pay more than lip service to diversity in the media. But up first is a story we've been covering for a while now here on New Mexico in Focus, and the threat became all the more real with the news of the recent deaths of six people in an apparent hate crime in Atlanta. It's just one of a series of escalating assaults directed at Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, including right here in New Mexico. To gain more perspective on how bad it has gotten and what we can do to turn the tide, I recently reached out to some members of the local Asian American community. Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast edition. Today is Friday, April 2nd, 2021. I am executive producer Kevin McDonald here at New Mexico PBS. And what a week it has been. We had a special legislative session in the midst of everything. And in the course of that, uh, New Mexico becomes the latest state to legalize adult use cannabis. Again, a special two-day session. They got that done. It was House Bill 2. There was a competing bill, uh, Senate Bill 3. But in the end, House Bill 2 was the one to take the day and is headed on to the governor's desk as we speak here on Friday. Also, there was companion legislation, another bill to include expungements for cannabis-related offenses tied to the Cannabis Regulation Act, that House Bill 2. We're going to have more on all of that here in a bit from our Growing Forward team. That's a podcast we do here in collaboration with New Mexico Political Report. But outside of that, this week, we also wanted to bring you some of our favorite Facebook Lives that we've done in recent months. These are something we try to do weekly on topics of the day. And these were really good, uh, really important topics, important conversations for us to have. And so we wanted to bring those to you here on the show. And we're going to kick things off with something that's been in the headlines nationally and here in New Mexico the rise of violence and harassing incidents involving or targeting people of Asian American and Pacific Islander descent. There was a rally this week uh, here in Albuquerque calling for an end to those incidents and the violence and the hatred uh, targeted against towards those communities. We have seen cases here, and of course, it was really driven home a couple weeks ago with the mass shooting in Atlanta where eight people were killed, six of them Asian-American women, and they were Asian-American businesses that were targeted there. So we've got a couple great guests to talk about that situation here. One of them, a familiar voice for those of you who follow the podcast and the show, Crystal Ciarza. 
Uh, she's with Ciarza, the Ciarza Group um, and Ciarza Digital, sorry. But she's also the uh, volunteer executive director of the Asian Business Collaborative. So she really has a pulse on the business community. Also, we're joined by Sachi Watasi of the Asian American Family Center here in New Mexico. So let's get to their thoughts and host Jean Grant. There's a lot of things we need to get to, a lot of issues that have been out there in the public consciousness about Asian Americans, people from the Pacific Islands that has just got to stop. This violence against women, 70% of the folks reported to be assaulted uh, lately, Asian Americans are women, 70%. I mean, this is just getting wildly out of control and we need to talk about this as a people. So I wanna thank you, Crystal, for joining me. Um, I know this is obviously not a great fun time to be talking about these things, but let me, let me ask you this straight away. How did you feel right from the top when it wasn't immediately said by the authorities, the police, everybody else in Atlanta and in, uh, in Fulton County, no one just went there and said it was a hate crime. People just sort of tapped their feet for a little while. How, how did that, I'm curious your reaction to that. Uh, I was livid. I definitely mm-hmm. dropped an F-bomb or several. Um, so looking, it was funny. So I got the breaking news update the Tuesday night when it had happened. And at first I didn't actually report that the mass shooting was, had involved Asian Americans. And at first I was like, wow, that's really sad. You know, that there's uh, the subject of mass shootings is back in the news considering the pandemic. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you think about it, it's the first mass shooting that we've had since lockdown. Right. And then Wednesday morning, the Asian Business Collaborative, which I'm the volunteer executive director for, um, one of our team members was like, guys, this isn't good. And um, it was heartbreaking to hear. And and all of a sudden, I got messages of support and saying, how do you feel? Are you all right? I'm thinking of you. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that, you know, immediately I went straight to my team. I was like, how are you guys doing? Are are you guys okay? And um, the the feeling of sorrow, the feeling of grief, the, the feeling of pain was just overwhelming. And um, then I read the article that the, and I saw the interview from the police chief that said um, that this individual, um, uh, this individual just had a bad day and it wasn't categorized as a hate crime. And I started screaming, um, you know, saying that this is absolutely a hate crime because um, how many, how I know that our Asian culture has, has dealt with so much grief and so much trauma when it came to the exploitation and sexualization of our women. In fact, you know, I used to joke and say that I was a, a mail order bride just to kind of get a kick out of it. And what, there was that one time that my mom heard that joke and she was like, I worked way too damn hard to overtake that stereotype. And, and that was a, that was my mistake of falling into that whitewashed culture of being okay with saying things like that. And, and there's definitely that conversation of how, how, what is the responsibility of our community to know that, um, that sexualization of Asian women's not okay. I think the part for me that, that did it, that like, that gets me still to this day is like, I, I always think about the aspect of the business owner, right? And there was two businesses that were affected by this, the Gold, Gold Spa and young, the Young Asians uh, Massage in Georgia. And, and uh, I was speaking to a group that was, I was speaking with a, a grief group that we all got together thanks to um, the National 
um, Asian, uh, Pan, Pan Asian, National Asian and Pan American Women's Forum that deals with this exact topic of sexualization and exploitation of Asian women in the Asian American Association. I was, I was speaking in that grief group and, um, and, the, uh, and what I said to them is, is what I'm sharing with you now, the, the part that hurts the most is the screaming of the, the employees like how how they went to work one day because they had what do we do best as Asian Americans we provide for our families and they were just simply providing for their family that day and they were killed I, I couldn't I even told you know so many of the different people that I work with and, and the different organizations I support I said I I wouldn't be able to live with myself if my team was killed under my watch and I can't I can't imagine what that would be for the Asian business business owners and um and just to hear the, the, the women just being killed and they're so helpless at that time. It's not fair. It's, it's not fair about what happened with them just simply because a guy had a bad day. And so I thought that was total BS of what the, um, of what the, the chief said. And I, and I don't think well, we as an Asian community will ever forgive him for what he said and not even drawing the conclusion that, that, that this could definitely be a part of the reason uh, this is part of the national sentiment of what we feel about the Asian community and, and, and how we've all had to defend the fact that it's the Chinese virus and how that was a, a terrible term and, and how the root of the problem is, is not, is the person. Well, it's also the community that believes in it too. And so it's been, um, it's been frustrating. And, and, and I think if there was a silver lining, you know, about the situation, it's the fact that the Asian community has been the most vocal that they ever have been in the last two to three weeks. And I'm really proud that, you know, our ancestors have, our ancestors have told us to, to be quiet and, and say it is what it is. But I think that now, now our community has just redefined that it's definitely time to speak up and actually advocate for Asians because it's not okay. Your sense of what you're seeing, we'll talk local here in a minute, but let's talk the broader issue of why this is happening in the first place. But then also awareness. Why is, I'm annoyed that there just doesn't seem to be enough awareness of this issue, even given the numbers I just sort of laid out. You would think this would be front page news across the country. Why, why isn't it? Um, I mean, I think we're deeply, I mean, watching these, watching what we're seeing is it's deeply saddening, but it's also not at all surprising um, because this kind of like white supremacy has always benefited from xenophobia and this kind of behavior. And I think that we've seen this kind of violence committed towards our communities for, for a long time, even before um, the coronavirus. And I think um, there's also the, the model minority myth, which is a myth that, you know, talks about Asians being like the best minority and not actually targeted by a lot of this kind of violence. But because of that myth, um, I think that that is, that is a huge reason why this isn't widespread knowledge. Um, and this isn't seen as something that is important to talk about or see or um, notice. And it, and it isn't top of the, um, of the news regularly until now. We're just tired of seeing the disrespect towards our grandparents, towards our parents, towards our elders. Um, and, and we are sometimes even going against the norm of, of what we're used to as an Asian culture, which is actually speaking up. The amount of respect that is ingrained in a lot of our different cultures um, is so deep that 
we are just, I think our generation of Asians now, um, the second and third generation, we're just tired of it. And, and I also, you know, we have to give credit to the communities of color that started to stand up for themselves because it started to open up those pathways. You know, even though I'm glad that those communities of color have opened those avenues for us, I'm also surprised that they haven't banded closer together with us too. And I don't know if that's us as an Asian community in New Mexico that needs to not be as divided or if whether or not, you know, our legislators, our communities, um, our, our, um, our, our, our loud leaders, our key influencers in our, our, our market need to stop thinking that it's only two major um, minority groups in New Mexico. In fact, it's actually three and that's Asian, Hispanic, and, and black or oh, four, I'm sorry, native, Asian, Hispanic, and black. Like we're here too. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. That's a good point. And let's, you know, Ms. Watase, you know, this goes, this problem goes back to the 19th and 20th centuries. It's not as if this is like a, a 2020 problem, uh, that, you know, suddenly we're all sort of like, we don't know how this has been happening. So you've got something going on for so long. I would have expected that when you've got this level of violence, this level of stress, this level of things happening in a community, that to Crystal's point, other communities would rally at this point. W would you like to see something like that happen as well? Yeah, I think so. I, th I mean, I think it's really important for our communities to come together and, and support each other um, when this kind of violence occurs. And I think, um, violence against any any racial group is violence against all of these racial groups. And um, I think it's incredibly important that we are there in solidarity with one another. I mean, we've seen, of course, so much anti-Black racism in this country. And, um, and it's also our responsibility as Asian Americans and Asians to be um, working in solidarity with that movement. I think it is, you know, violence against any group based on their race or ethnicity or language ability or um, color of their skin is incredibly, incredibly damaging to our communities. So um, yeah, I think it would be great if, you know, we all rally together and fight all of these kinds of forms of violence. Are you getting reports, uh, any local situations here at, at the organization? Are you getting complaints? Um, yeah. I mean, we always have like our agency is a direct service agency. So we, we work closely with the community um, on, you know, victims of crime, victims of domestic violence or sexual violence, um, you know, providing basic um, access to basic needs, resource navigation, et cetera. And so we do have a lot of clients who come to us and share with us instances of uh, violence towards them. Um, and we've seen this not just recently, but for years, um, including racism towards Muslim women on the tra public transportation, uh, harassment where people do not step in and do not um, intervene. We've seen, you know, uh, recently a client who works at a um, massage parlor who's, who, and one of the clients refused to um, put on a mask and then physically assaulted the, our, our client um, and, you know, we've seen a lot of these kinds of forms of harassment, the harass uh, vandaliz vandaliz vandalism on the Taste of India restaurant in Albuquerque around like four times last year, I think, you know, there, there's so many instances of, of this and um, we've seen it come up time and time again. Mm -hmm. yeah, we, we, the comment, 
please. Sorry, and to comment on the Asian business community perspective, um, the Taste of India situation was an example of how local leaders started to recognize that there needed to be changed. In fact, um, APD reached out to the Asian Business Collaborative asking to say, how can we support these Asian businesses, especially with the crimes that, that are written? And so we reached out, ABC reached out to the Taste of India and they said, you know, we're just frustrated that we have to take matters into our own hands. Right. Um, and, you know, security and, and protocol has, has just been so difficult, especially for a small business. But what people don't understand is that some of these small business owners, this is their paycheck, this is their livelihood. They're not you know, the highly educated, or they may be the highly educated, um, you know, Asians that that uh, we hear about in demographics and statistics, but they're still making a living off of their businesses. And then to add the racial discrimination on top of that just makes a really unhealthy situation. Yep, exactly right. You know, I keep thinking about, Crystal, this idea of Asian Americans being perceived as the, you know, perpetual, you know, foreigners. Like, you know what I mean? Like, not quite Americans. You hear this kind of foolishness from, you know, ignorant people all the time. I don't understand how this has continued to last in our country. I, 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 honestly, it just really, you know, the level of ignorance on display here when you've got 90-year-olds being assaulted because of a pandemic. I mean, how, how do you punch through to someone like that, that, that's willing to assault an elder, for gosh sake? I mean, is it jail time? Is it, you know, education? What, yeah. what's, what's, the, what's the way? I, um, I think about the actual founder of the New Mexico Asian Family Center, um, and, I, and she's, she was my aunt, she was my mentor, which is Dr. Adelomar Alcantara, or Auntie Deli, as many of us in the Asian community know. And I think she answered this best when she won the Cici Puede Award during the Cesar Chavez celebration before she passed away. And she says, our generation, meaning the second and third generation, has to fight. We mm -hmm. have to fight back. We have to say something. We have to make that institutional change against racism because those elders that are consistently being threatened, if they were not grown, they, they were not influenced to, to speak up the way that we are, um, especially in our communities. And, um, and so I, I think about that speech so much because it's just resonated with me. Um, and it, it became a big part of the Asian Family Center when she started it because she was just tired of seeing how so many people were discriminated um, just because uh, and the domestic violence issues and the sexual assault issues and, and the, uh, the persecutions that they would, they would constantly receive. And, um, and, and also too, I think it's, it's awareness, you know, education and awareness is a big thing. And, and um, myself and uh, along with uh, Khalil, uh, the, one mm -hmm. of the Mexico PBS contributors, he had asked me the same question of like, what do you do whenever you have communities that are trying to learn about diversity, but they don't know how to address it and they don't know how, what to do to make that change. I say, educate yourself, educate yourself on a situation where um, you know that you're, you're willing to, to make a change and you're willing to spend the time to learn more about the culture rather than just saying, I have a cousin or I'm married to a Japanese person or I'm married to a Filipina. So I know about the culture. Right. That's not the case. It's take the time to actually better educate yourself. Let me go back to something that uh, we can't breeze over. And Crystal mentioned this, and that is the rhetoric that started this whole thing from our previous president, those incendiary comments. Uh, it, it, it can't be let go for this conversation because that is really where a lot of this started. And I mentioned the uh, Stop AAPI uh, Hate uh, site, and there's a professor of Asian American Studies at San Francisco State University. He gives this quote about the, you know, why the Chinese virus and subsequent hate speech uh, has, has been a problem. Quote, it gives people license to attack us. 
The current spate of attacks on our elderly is part of how that rhetoric has impacted the broader population. I mean, I find that very frightening that, you know, that elders are being attacked over a president's rhetoric. There's something about that that is so unseemly, so wrong on so many levels. And I have to say again, last late summer, last fall, I really didn't hear a lot of uh, MSNBC, CNN, you know, whatever, people really grinding on this issue to find some solutions. Is the fourth, Crystal, in your mind, is the fourth estate somewhat of a, of a problem on this issue as well? Um, I think it's, um, it, it goes back to, I know that the media, especially being a person in the media, I, I, I understand that the visibility, you don't know if a story is a story unless somebody speaks up about it. Right. And so I think our communities are also responsible for not speaking enough about it. Mm -hmm. Um, especially since, um, you know, I was reading a couple articles on, on what's been happening is that it's the younger generation that has been actually standing up and filming some of these, these terrorist acts or these, these horrible acts of violence because they were willing to pull out their cell phone mm -hmm. um, and the generational gaps that we have, especially with our seniors. And, and it does, it, it genuinely breaks my heart that our seniors don't feel like they should speak up until it's, it's absolutely at the end, or it might be, it might be too late. They might be gone. And so, um, you know, and, and also to this whole rhetoric of the Chinese virus always just pisses me off uh, beyond beyond belief because um, it created an opportunity where it's not just Chinese, it's it's everybody in the Asian community that it opened the door for that type of um, negative racism and rhetoric where, um, you know, uh, Asian restaurants in Rio Rancho were getting phone calls from the public because they said, you know, close down your doors because you guys are causing the virus. Even Filipinos, you know, we're, we're not really very close to China or even, you know, that we are in relationship to the continent, but, um, it was just really frustrating that even Filipinos felt threatened to be Asian. And, and I think what's the, the most important, uh, the most unfortunate part for me is that we are always very proud to be different. You know, we are very proud to be Filipino. We're very proud to be Japanese or, or whatever our culture might be. And that wording a Chinese virus gives us doubt to be proud of who we are. I hate that. And I, I want to change that, that mindset tomorrow. Now, yeah. even. Sachi Watasi and Crystal Sierra, thank you both so much for spending some time on this. This is going to be a continuing discussion. This is not a one-time deal. Uh, obviously, this is not going to go away after this segment, so we need to stay on top of this uh, here at New Mexico PBS as well. So thank you both, though, for spending some time and educating us on this issue. Thanks, Gene. Absolutely. So diversity and inclusion is going to be a theme this week for sure. We ha recently talked to uh, another guest uh, person here in the community. That is Lori Walden, not a name you may not be familiar with on an everyday basis, but she is the power horse behind KOAT TV here in Albuquerque. She is the first African-American president and general manager of a major news station here in the Albuquerque market, and so she definitely understands why representation matters in local news and local TV, why it's important who tells us our stories and what stories they tell. So she and Jean Grant recently did a great Q&A and an article that Jean did for the paper, which is the new weekly um, online 
and print uh, publication here in Albuquerque. Kind of came out of the wake of the weekly alibi. And this was a part of their Black History Month coverage that they did. They turned a lot of their content over to uh, members of the black community. And Gene Grant focused on this. And we wanted to dig into it a little deeper. So he caught up with Lori Walden recently. Had a great conversation also about uh, minority ownership and uh, just the challenges that someone like uh, Lori Walden faces on a day-to-day basis in terms of diversity from her personal experience. So here now that interview. As an African-American woman coming up in the business, uh, you were a poli-sci major in college. Talk about the challenges you faced early as a black woman in this business. Oh, that's a great, that's a, yeah. It's funny, as, as far that was a long time ago when I started, sure. and yet there are things that I still think about. Mm-hmm. You know, Eugene, I would say that it's hard because you walk into a place and you want to know that you're always being given the benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. But I found myself always having to feel like I had to be three times as good to get half as much. You walk into rooms, you walk into situations wearing armor because you feel like you have to always be the strongest in the room and the best. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think that I ran into different kinds of issues because um, in a newsroom, you will see African-American reporters or reporters of color. What you don't always see are African-Americans in management positions. And right. so I found myself um, by myself. And when you sit at that table, I was all, often the only African-American at the table, not at that point, the head of the table, just the only one at the table. And so I would hear something, challenge it maybe, and I would get challenged. Um, And it's hard being the only one at the table Mm -hmm. um, when you feel like your voice is alone. Um, But little by little, I was lucky because I had bosses who, um, I had some bad bosses, I won't (laughs) lie, but I also had some good bosses who Mm -hmm. heard my voice and wanted to elevate me. Um, but it wasn't just making sure that voices are heard, but how are we telling those stories? Who's being hired to tell those stories? And that's how I knew that I wanted to go into management because we didn't, while we may get to the table, we didn't have people of color who were at the heads of the table. And I thought that was important. That's a, that's a big distinction, isn't it? It's one thing to be able to speak up in a situation. It's another thing to put things in action or put things in motion. That's right. And that's a whole other thing. I, I couldn't agree with that more. You know, interestingly, when I think about the markets you've been in as well, I, I have to say this, I, I have to think you're, you're, as a black woman, you're coming into this pretty battle hardened. I mean, Sacramento and, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. You know, be tall and bulletproof at this point, you know, so. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But does, does that help? You know, being. It does. Have, yeah. It does. it does. That's a great. Yeah, it does. Having the experience um, does help having lived in different places, not only as a news director, but I, I've lived all over the country. So as a reporter, I, I started out in Peoria and then I moved to Mobile and to Charlotte and wow. to the Bay Area um, and to Sacramento and to Milwaukee and to here. So I've been in different, different markets pretty mm-hmm. much all over the country. And so that's given me, um, yeah, that's given me some experience Um I would also say that I'm not as young anymore. So I understand, you know, some of the lessons. But if I could talk to my 20-year-old self or 25-year-old self, there are things that I've learned along the way that I think um, have helped me. And I would also say this too. 
Um, <laughs> it's why I also know that I can stand in a room and be the only and feel confident because right. I've been there and I know, you know, you can challenge me, but I know what I'm talking about. I've been to these newsrooms. I've, we've won awards. We've won ratings. I know what I'm, I know what we're talking about. So um, there's credibility there, which I think yeah. helps me as well. That's right. And people pick up on that kind of thing. You know I, what I mean? When, I when someone's so. really been around yeah. in this, people pick up on that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, what's the biggest challenge you see for black reporters that either have worked under you or it doesn't necessarily have to be under you? You know, there's always that early, it's almost like teachers, you know, the big problem for teachers is dropping out in the first year. That's yeah. where they get a lot of teachers. And I have to right. think journalists of color, it, it's so jolting to be in a newsroom and be the only one. And I, you know, people dropping out of the business after a short period of time is a difficulty. It is. What, what are you seeing out there for difficulties for young reporters? Um, I think a lot of times, kind of what I mentioned before, um, about, first of all, just um, when you're the only in a room, people look at you differently. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, sometimes there's a level of, can you do this? Um, right. It's finding yourself in um, positions where you want to pitch stories mm -hmm. and you know that they're important stories, but you don't always get buy-in from the people who are above you. Mm -hmm. um, or sometimes it could be relegated to certain stories, but I want to cover that. Mm, yeah, I want you to cover this. Mm -hmm. um, when reporters are starting out, oftentimes they start out in very small markets. That's very typical. And a mm -hmm. lot of times these really tiny markets, um, there aren't a lot of people of color in those communities. And so there's a feeling of isolation, let alone the stories that you think you should be doing. Um, so I think that's different. Um, mm -hmm. I think also just keeping young reporters in the business. You know, it's not you don't go into journalism a lot of times for the paycheck um, right. or even into broadcasting. You go because it's a calling. Um, so it's keeping the people who are doing well in the business. Um, I think that's, that's a, that's a challenge too. Mm -hmm. um, and also just, I would just say overall, especially reporters of color, just reminding them that their voices are important and that they may run up against obstacles um, when it comes to wanting to do the kinds of stories or, or voicing concerns. And not to be um, discouraged if you aren't getting the kind of um, attention that you should be, I think, is, is a challenge as well. Right. Now, you've been a news director, as you mentioned, in your, in your uh, uh, career. A huge bit I want to talk about here for a second, because that's an enormous power position in a newsroom. Yeah. I mean, you, yeah. really get, you get to say yes or no, basically. Right. There are you not do. many positions where a Black person gets to say yes or no. <laughs> on, and, and that's the final word, by the way, that yes or no. That's a very right. rare thing. Right. Um, is there a certain skill set, it seems to you, and you've witnessed in your journey to be able to take that step up into management? What, what does one have to have to be able to be a news director of any color and be successful at it? You know, one of the things that I was very proud of that um, when bosses promoted me, they said that I had two things that um, helped me to succeed and why I was promoted. Um, and there are two passions that I have. Um, first of all, I was, I was told, and I love, I'm just a good newswoman. I just love news. I yeah. love news. I love the craft of news. I love merry, wonderful words and pictures. I love great storytelling. I love drilling down. I like asking questions. I like being a critical thinker, which I think is important. I see myself as the viewer. I am the viewer. I am the advocate for the viewer. 
um, I heard a wonderful saying, we don't produce for the newsroom, we produce for the living room. So nice. it's remembering that. Um, so I just loved news, local, national, global, I didn't care. I saw that as my calling and that was my passion. And that's how I built my teams in the newsroom. And then the second thing, um, <laughs> I laugh because it's something I just dearly love, but I, it's odd, I know, but I love managing people. I love <laughs> leading people. I love building teams. I see myself as the coach. I see myself as the head coach. And so when I look at how do you cover breaking news wonderfully, how do you cover investigative? It starts with the people that you hire. And you're good to them. And I find that when you're good to your people, they are good to you. And when you get out of their way and you give them the tools that they need and you recognize where they are strong, um, they do great work. Mm-hmm. And when they do great work, they're energized. And when they're energized, the work reflects that. So right. I would try to bring that spirit into the leadership positions that I've been in. And it, it, it's been successful, but again, it's also something that I love. So being a good news person and I think being good with building teams is, is important. That's a, it's a, that foundational thing, right? You know, everyone thing has to have a foundation to build on, that's for sure. Right. You know, one of the problems when you're a minority in a newsroom is having someone who has your back, basically. Right. Right. And let me kind of put it this way. In a lot of endeavors out there, there's a lot of bosses who are willing to let you fail. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can grow from it. But in a lot of cases, when you're the minority, you don't get that feeling. If you fail, you just fail. Right. It, 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 it's viewed differently. Do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah. It, difficulty. So how important, I'm back in the idea of management and the idea of, of being that voice in the room to say, okay, this reporter may have missed it on this one just by a little bit, but I think there's something we can work with here. Let's all not panic. Let's just you know, do a little training over the next six months, whatever the case may be. How important is that for someone to have uh, someone at their back like that? It's very important. It's very important. Um, Failure is a great teacher. Failure Mm -hmm. is a great teacher. We all learn from failure. But when I think when you're a person of color, you don't feel like you have that luxury. I don't have the luxury to fail because everyone's looking at me. I'm automatically in a spotlight. And so I had to walk into a room and be the biggest, you know, Mm -hmm. get my language, badass in the room. I don't have a luxury to fail because there are people who will, if I do, may assume eh, she wasn't going to make it anyway. And so mm-hmm. I never felt that way. And so as a news director, I always wanted to have the best ratings or award winning, or you just feel like you have to. But I have also had bosses who, when I have fallen short, because that's how you learn, they were good enough to say, but that's okay. What did you learn from it? What did you mm-hmm. learn? From it? And I, that's how I also try to manage as well. But I have, you know, I have to say, I understand that in theory and I get it. But I do think when you're a person of color, that's something that's always in the back of your mind. Um, I don't want to fail. I don't want to fail because people may think I'm going to, or they may expect it. And um, it's not fair, but it's often the way it is. Right. Exactly right. My frustration since the 90s or 1995, specifically how we're tracking hiring for black people in newsrooms has been sort of an up and down thing, but not a whole lot of progress. Do you have a crystal ball personally? That Are you optimistic about the, uh, more black representation? Do you see positive signs in the news business? I do. It, here's mm-hmm. where the, the I think the good news and, and then I would say where I'm a little bit 
Um, I won't say concerned, but I'm my, you know, I'm watching very carefully. Um, even before George Floyd, even before all of the things that happened happened last year, um, and you know, I mentioned this in the article. Um, stations know that it is important for their personnel on camera and off camera to reflect the communities that they serve. So it is good business and smart business to have a diverse um, workforce in stations, newsrooms and, and otherwise. I think that after George Floyd, it became, you know, there was a big uh, a light, uh, we shined a light on that. And it's all, so it was even more important, but it's always been important. That's the good news. So I think that's the good news. What I can, what I am concerned about um, is the it, it's important right now, but it's always been important. But there's a there's a lot of attention to it. What I am concerned about is what is what are things going to look like in a year, mm. and is there still going to be this level of engagement? Is there still going to be this level of um, aggressiveness in hiring? Um, I don't, we don't want this to be the flavor of the month. It's got to be ongoing. Mm -hmm. And it's not just because, you know, there's a light shining on us and people are going to notice that we don't, we aren't, we don't have a diverse workforce at stations. It's the right thing to do. It is the right thing to do. When you have a diverse um, workplace, you are richer, you mm -hmm. are smarter you are better thinkers. And so it benefits all of us. So I know it's it's very top of mind for most media companies, as it should, as it always should be. But I'm just hoping that it doesn't die down in a year when other things capture our attention. It's not just Black representation in the newsroom, Native American, Absolutely. Asian American representation. We so we have, yeah. to. we have to. And it's a Recruiting has been interesting because a lot of people don't know about New Mexico. And so we educate them, you know, because they, you know, people haven't always been out this way, but it, it's so important that we are diverse. And, you know, I'll be honest, when I got here, I didn't see as much diversity as I thought that I would. Right. And we, I, that was one of the things that I knew, you know, we got to rethink this because that, that's not who we are as a state or as a country. I got another question about Black-owned media and small uh, Black-owned media. And I've always had this thought that maybe, you know, here in Albuquerque, we're not a huge part of the population, meaning African-Americans. Okay. But there is the opportunity as well, meaning we've had a, Ronnie Wallace has been here for years uh, running a publication, Black publication for over like 25 years now. But it might be time for perhaps some younger bucks to get in the game and really get that supporting in the neighborhood. Do you see some of that happening around the country? Are, are you supportive of that idea as well? Oh, very supportive. Very yeah. supportive. Um, you know, it's 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 a challenge because I think the desire to do it, mm -hmm. I think the stories and content are absolutely there. A lot of times, it's a matter of economics, mm -hmm. and that's I think that has to do that that influences whoever wants to start a publication. You know. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think that their time is right. And I do think that their desire is there. And mm -hmm. I do think that the journalists are there. And I think the people who can put these together are there. Right. Um, so there's a lot of entrepreneurial, a big spirit that's going on with entrepreneurs, especially mm -hmm. when um, they're seeing that mainstream media doesn't satisfy what they're interested in and what they mm -hmm. think 
others are interested in. And so they're going out and forging their own way to create these new ways, these new platforms um, mm -hmm. and new, new streams of uh, content, which I think is really exciting. You know, it's been, you've been here a while now, and I'm sure it's no surprise that the complicated nature of our history, of our, I mean, there's a lot of different tensions and backgrounds and historical things that inform a lot of New Mexico culture here. And it can be, it takes a little while to parse out sometimes when you're from the outside. I'm from the outside. I've been here 30 plus years, and I'm still trying to parse a lot of things out. Yeah. You know, a lot of difficulties. How challenging has that been for you to kind of get a sense in your arms around New Mexico and the complexities here? It, it, it has been um, challenging, but in a good way. Um, okay. you're, but you're absolutely right. I mean, I've learned um, that, you know, that the, there is a complicated history to this state. And especially when the statue was toppled. Um, yes. in Albuquerque. So that brought up a lot. And so I yeah. learned about that and I've been trying to learn the history. Um, contentious history and, and, and trying to understand, well, why when we do a story, we get this kind of response. Um, some of my biggest educators, I have to say, um, and sometimes it's difficult, are some of our viewers. Where when we do a story, they will respond and it could be positive or, or negative. And if it's negative, I try to understand where are they coming from? And right. some are just let me, let me explain why some of us didn't like this. And it's very educational. Mm -hmm. There are others who are just, just kind of angry and nasty. And I have to take that in stride and understand, um, okay, here's why it's going the way it's going. Some of it has been about culture, mm -hmm. but quite frankly, some of it has been political because <laughs> we are coming through some contentious times, <laughs> especially last year. Right. Um, but it's a complicated history, but I also find that there's a lot of beauty in this state, which I have enjoyed learning about and the mm -hmm. people. Um, it's, it's, I've, I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it. it, it when, when you start getting in digging into it, it, it takes your breath away. It, this, it, I just have to say that personally, it really, you know, there's a point, I think I was about 10 years in and I was like, wow, this is an amazingly complicated place. It's complicated. Really? Decade later, you know what I mean. It is it's complicated, but that's part of our part of our charm and our strength, of course, as you've realized as well. Ooh, that we exactly here, that is uh, like like a mesh screen that's all tied together. Yep. I can't thank you enough, Lori, for spending some time with us here. I love this. this yeah. I forget we're live. You know, I, I feel like I'm I, just having a good conversation over lunch. This is great. I love yeah. it. I love it. It's good. <laughs> We hope you enjoyed that conversation as well. Just a terrific example of an important conversation and one that doesn't often uh, get had and needs to be had as we look to um, increase the number of voices that we see and hear on our airwaves. And uh, so we hope you enjoy that. Let us know what you think. Going to round out this week with another really important story, one you probably did see in the headlines. And that was a new accreditation certification for UNM Hospital to create the state's first certified stroke center. Uh, this is one of those silent killers that we, we all know about, have probably been touched in our personal lives in some form or fashion with someone who has had a stroke. And we wanted to find out a lot more about what the stroke center is, what it will do, and why it's a benefit to the whole state, not just here 
in Albuquerque and the metro community around UNMH, but it really will have trickle effects throughout the state. So we gathered some of the folks behind the effort who will be running the Stroke Center. They sat down with Gene Grant for this insightful conversation. Guys, thank you all for joining us. I really appreciate it. Andrew, let me start with you, if I might. I'm not going by order of importance, just by who's on my screen <laughs> as I look down and see. But uh, talk about the accreditation, if you would, what it involved, why this was a years-long program, and what it means for the state to finally receive it. Al alphabetical helps sometimes, I guess. Right. So, um, so I'm a neurosurgeon. I, I treat mostly blood vessel problems, and I do treatments of blood vessel kind of things, both inside the blood vessels, what we call endovascular therapy, and when surgery is needed. Mm -hmm. And so I'm the surgical director of the stroke program, and Michelle is the medical director of the stroke program. And this really is a collaborative effort where a number of different disciplines need to work together to treat this complex problem of stroke. Why this is exciting for the state is because it recognizes the high level of care that we can provide to patients with the most complex and the most debilitating kinds of strokes. It recognizes our ability to work very quickly to get the right treatments to patients, whether that's giving patients medication or whether that's very quickly getting them um, into our uh, angiography suite to be able to remove clots from the brain. And we know based on a, a lot of studies that have come out recently that stroke, has, stroke treatment has really changed over the last few years. We now can really, really improve the chances that somebody will have a good outcome after stroke. And so that's, that's where this effort is incredibly important for New Mexico because we have to be fast about it. And so trying to streamline all those processes, trying to streamline the groups that are working together to take care of these patients, and then, of course, extending that outreach across the rest of the state, which I think we'll talk about a little bit more later. Mm -hmm. But in order to get patients all over the state to be able to have access to that high-level care is really what the core of the comprehensive stroke designation is for us. Gotcha. Torsten Road, as I read it, you've been on this trail literally for a long time in your career. And uh, why is it important for, New for everyday New Mexicans to have uh, this stroke center? Uh, obviously, Andrew touched on this a little bit, but, uh, you know, when there, when time is an issue, when it comes to strokes, why, why this center, why the importance? Well, the big deal there is that we are the only at this time, uh, but the first comprehensive stroke center, which means as Dr. Um, Carlson already pointed out, we can do some of the things that no other center in the state can do. Uh, mm -hmm. We can do, uh, of course, the thrombectomies, you talked about the, the mechanical removing of clots, and, but then also any kind of follow-up problems if the patient has bleeds in the head, uh, the, the uh, neurosurgery part of it. So the, the big issue there is that these patients that Dr. Carlson described, the really uh, debilitating strokes should, if at all possible, come to us directly. That's really the big difference. So they might even have to bypass a, a, a hospital that's a little closer, but doesn't have the capabilities. So that's something that the state has to understand and that we're talking with, um, with uh, EMS and uh, that these patients then come to us uh, and we can take care of them from the moment they arrive to all the way till they're discharged. So mm -hmm. that includes uh, our uh, neurosurgery um, uh, ICU uh, 
unit. So that's also unique in the state. So the nursing care, the level of nursing care they, they receive, uh, the constant availability of 24-7 uh, of doctors, of neurosurgeons, of neurologists, everybody's here basically uh, around the clock. And that's something that's quite, quite unique uh, in the state. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to guess you've seen sort of both sides of this, meaning how we've done it to this point and what you anticipate being able to do better under this, under this uh, designation. Am I f following that correctly? Uh, yes, of course. I mean, uh, with Dr. Carlson coming back, we, our, our level of care, we just would jumped up uh, years and years ago already. And mm -hmm. now we just got finally the, the title uh, that shows that we have this level of uh, capabilities that we've actually already had for a few years now. Um, I did see it before. I see it in my own family. My grandma had strokes and uh, that was mm -hmm. debilitating, right? Months and months and months of rehab to get speech back. And when you see some of these patients come in with these devastating uh, um, diagnoses and then sometimes walk out in a, in a few days later after we treated wow. them. Uh, that's just something that is uh, uh, very special that you don't see in many other disciplines. That is interesting. I'm glad you got that in. That is actually fascinating. Uh, uh, Dr. Torby, Michael Torby, you're a stroke specialist and chair of the Department of Neurology. Um, I, I, let's get into access to critical cerebral emergency support services or access telemedicine program. Tell us about access and what it does. So thank you, Gene. The, the UNM Access Program is our teleneurology platform or emergency teleneurology platform. And, mm -hmm. and it's currently present in, in more than 20 hospitals in, in, in rural New Mexico. Um, when, when you think of New Mexico and you think of how the hospital are dispersed, and as you mentioned earlier, time is brain, it makes it very challenging to bring all these patients to the main hospitals in the big cities so they could receive the care certainly makes it challenging to bring them all to one comprehensive stroke center and be able to then triage and try to figure out the best treatment. Mm -hmm. And then if you realize that, well, maybe this is not a stroke, now these patients are two hours away from home, no transportation, and, and it becomes a big challenge and financial issue. So what ACCESS allows us to do is we are able to beam in literally to these emergency rooms and, and examine these patients live and assess their symptoms and look at their imaging and decide whether indeed they're having a stroke and then what type of strokes are having. Are they having an ischemic stroke where you have a blood vessels that's occluded or are you having a hemorrhagic stroke where you have a blood vessel that burst? Right. And then if not, then they could stay in their local hospitals and don't need to come all the way. So th this really allows us to also provide the right treatment right at the bedside. So for those patients who are having an acute stroke, we are able to give them the clot busting medication at the bedside in the facility within the same speed that, that we would give them if they came immediately to our hospital. So you're elevating that level of care mm -hmm. to almost a stroke center level of care, but then they need the next follow-up, which is now potentially taking the clot out or they may need to come to the ICU. So you're really bringing the right patient to the right place in the right time. I think this combination is what makes it very successful as we treat the acute stroke patient. And if it's a hemorrhage patient, then you know we already know that this patient is coming. The angio suite may be ready for the aneurysm coiling or the ICU is ready for this patient. So you're really expediting the care across the board. 
And mm -hmm. the access center is currently covered uh, for all stroke patients by, um, you know, our stroke team. Neurosurgery is, is also, um, you know, covering for the neurosurgical emergency. And, and this is the way we connect the state and avoid unnecessary expensive transport, as you know. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Carlson, you touched on this just a little bit ago, and Dr. Torby just did a second ago as well, the new technologies that are out there. I have to say, as a layperson, I'm rather blown away watching video of uh, going through a vein in the leg coming all the way up into your brain <laughs> to be able to reach another thing inside that tube to yank a, uh, a, a smaller clot out. It's, it's astounding, actually. I, talk about the leaps that have been made over the past years and, and how, this is, uh, how this is accomplished. Yeah, it, it really is exciting. I agree. I've, I've only been out of training for eight years doing this. And even in that time, the field has just remarkably changed mm -hmm. in terms of what we're able to do through very minimally invasive and very safe approaches. And I think that as Dr. Torbay mentioned, there, it's, it's important to remember that there are two general categories of stroke. We have bleeding types of stroke, yep. hemorrhagic stroke, and we have ischemic stroke, which means a blood vessel gets blocked off. And our ability to treat both of those things has just skyrocketed. So our ability to treat um, blood vessel ruptures where something like an aneurysm bursts and cause bleeding in the brain, most of those cases we're able to now treat up through the leg or sometimes even up through the wrist through oh, wow. just a tiny needle puncture um, and be able to, to put a device or little metal coils or loops into the burst point and seal everything up, which is a, obviously a much, uh, a much less invasive approach than when we have to do surgery to put metal clips to seal those. But for ischemic stroke, this is really where things have revolutionized the field just because it's so much more common. It's, it's, it's the most common type of stroke and when a blood vessel gets blocked off, like the carotid artery or one of the main blood vessels going out to the side of the brain from a clot that comes from the heart or comes from the neck somewhere, exactly as you said, we're able to thread tiny tubes all the way up using just x-rays from a puncture in the leg and then either retrieve that clot with a little net or sometimes even put a little suction up right up to the clot and suck it out of there if needed, we can open up the blood vessel and keep it open with a stent. And, and that's a, a proven treatment where we know that, um, that if we do that treatment for people who have blocked off blood vessels and still have brain that we can save, that there's a very good chance that we'll be able to get somebody not just to survive, but actually to have a good outcome, which is really what's different here. We're, we're not talking about just making somebody survive, but in a severely debilitated state, we can actually make more people be able to be interactive, be able to be communicative and be able to take care of themselves compared to if we, if we couldn't do that treatment. So that's what's really exciting about the technological advances. That's amazing. That's really through the wrist. That's amazing. Uh, Torsten Rhodes, does this, what's the window now, as Dr. Carlson describes it, my understanding is a lay person is about four to four and a half hours. You don't want to push it, you know, obviously up to four, four and a half hours, but what's the window? Has it narrowed in a way that you can get folks in a, into a better recovery position? 
Well, actually, we're working on extending those windows, right? So okay. the, for, the, the, right. for the for yeah, yeah. for the for the uh, clot busting medication, uh, TPA or Alteplase, there's now a couple of them out there. Uh, our standard number is three hours, but we can extend this to four and a half. That's the number you have now for the for the technology that Dr. Carlson is describing. We're looking at a 24-hour window. Um, that, that that still can be very effective, and maybe even you know, depending on the situation, uh, looking at stretching that. Um, there are other ways. The one the one stroke that always confounded us is a wake up stroke. Right, person goes to bed normal, wakes up, <laughs> you know, eight hours later and uh, has a stroke, and now we don't know when the stroke happened, so we always have to assume the last normal well you know when it was seen the last time mm -hmm. and uh, but there's even talk about looking at that and and extending those windows so um uh it, it's moving in in the in the direction of uh, more intervention um at uh, later stages but mm -hmm. i let the doctors talk about that even more yeah yeah torsh let me stay with you on this one though uh, we should get into again another reminder for folks about what to look for in a stroke, if you're out in public with your friends and family. I've been in two mm. situations, uh, both of them were cookouts, believe it or not, mm. uh, years where uh, there was a stroke situation. One was quite obvious and quite severe, but the other one, we literally had to talk the person, I, I wasn't part of this, but they, the person had to be talked into <laughs> going to the hospital because they were like, ah, I feel all right. I just was sort of lightheaded. <laughs> well, a week later, I find out it turned out they did have a small stroke. Yes. How often does that happen where people feel like they're just a little bit off, but they don't feel like they need to take that next step and they don't realize that something very serious is going on here? Well, you make a great point. Uh, education about that is probably one of our most important steps. So the, the, uh, the recognition of the stroke and uh, especially now in this you know, new world we're living with COVID and people are afraid of going out, people are afraid of going to the hospital. We had for a while concerns that people... Uh, with light, slight um, symptoms, decided not to go to the hospital because they were afraid of. So we had public announcements about that. So the mnemonic is, of course, is be fast um, that we're using. Uh, B is for balance. You know, when you're suddenly off balance and, and you can't stand up, uh, that might be a, a stroke symptoms. Uh, eye deviation, when your eyes uh, can't really look where you want them to. Uh, and then the, the obvious ones that we know for a long time, the facial droop, that's often the one that family recognizes, you know, mom, suddenly the one side of the face just falling. Um, uh, then we have the arm uh, that you can't move part of your body, usually the side that's opposite from what's affected in the brain. Um, speech, that's a big one too. That's actually the one that I would think that you, you talked earlier about people being at home and being alone. Yes. Uh, when you can suddenly get your words out, uh, that's a big, big uh, uh, indication, and you do need to call if you can. And then the last one for be fast is time, right? Time is brain, as Dr. Tobey said. So uh, we would recommend, we are recommending even slight symptoms. If you have um, uh, a speech problem suddenly onset, or you know, you're definitely facial droop, but even if your balance is off, do come in, let us look at you, let us scan you, and then these guys here on the, on my uh, on my right, uh, will uh, be able to tell you what's going on. Interesting. I have an aunt, she's long past now. Uh, she was a victim of a stroke. No one had gotten to her for a number of hours. And regrettably, mm -hmm. she lived out the last seven years of her life 
just not in a great place. It was really just a, not a good situation. And this, I've always gotten the feeling this is way more common than people realize. Like this is like sort of like the silent thing. We talk about silent killers, all that kind of thing. The problem with stroke is, you know, there's, there's a, a diminished life that happens sometimes when you do recover and how to get across the seriousness of that that you may end up in a chair. You may end up not being able to feed yourself. I mean, just all, I don't mean to be dramatic here. Don't get me wrong, but there are serious implications Mm -hmm. for when a stroke is not caught that sometimes I feel like the public's not quite snapping to. Do you you have a sense of that? You can help me with on this one. Yeah, no, Gene, I mean, this is really an important issue and to kind of follow up on on what Torsten mentioned, I mean, the the big challenge, as you've noted in some some of these cookout is, is when the patient develops stroke symptoms and then the symptoms resolve completely. And this is what we call a TIA or transient ischemic attack. At that stage, they feel they're fine and they don't wanna to go to the hospital. And it's important for patients to realize that their risk of a recurrent stroke is exactly the same, whether they had a TIA or a full big stroke that ended up and go and ended up by, by them go, needing to go to the hospital emergently. So, wow. so this is what I tell my patient is, is this was your, your warning sign. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, it's important for you to go to the hospital to make sure that any problem is being addressed and fixed. And, and going to your question, a lot of it is, is because sometimes even in an acute setting, stroke is not a painful disease. Like when you're heart attack, you have the severe chest pain that radiating to your arm. And the reason you go to a hospital is, is mostly to get rid of the pain, not, not as much because of, you know, you think, oh, I'm having a heart attack. And, and it's unfortunate from a stroke perspective, but also to help them in the recovery, which is going to be as important as getting the, the, the stroke therapy. Because if, if you can get the best therapy, let's say at, at UNM, and now you're going to go to rehab, and then in the rehab facility, they're not working uh, on, you know, on your stroke as they need to. But also if the patient isn't following the recommendation from their stroke rehab docs, all the work that we've done in the first 24, 48 hours for this amazing recovery, the patient could get step backs and, and not perform at 100%. So it's a continuum of care that we have to really work as a team across the board and with the patient being the center of this whole sort of process uh, to work with them and educate them on what would be the, you know, the, uh, the best way to, to get the optimum recovery. It's important. It's important for New Mexico with an aging population. It's kind of a big deal. So thanks, guys. I really appreciate your time today. Absolutely. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. We kicked off the show talking about the big news of the week. That was the special legislative session less than two weeks after the end of the regular session. One of the big priorities for the governor and a lot of folks in leadership was legalization of an adult use cannabis market. And they were really close to getting it across the finish line during the regular session. So close, in fact, that Governor Michelle Luan Grisham said she was going to call this short session to get this thing done. And after two grueling days, lawmakers did, in fact, get that legislation passed, the Cannabis Regulation Act, and uh, as well as an, uh, a companion bill that will provide for and create a pathway for expungements of cannabis-related offenses once the Cannabis Regulation Act is the law and that is no longer illegal. And so we wanted to catch up to some of the sponsors of that legislation, which 
Those of you who followed in the regular session was House Bill 12 at that time. And so uh, Representatives Javier Martinez and Deborah Armstrong joined our Growing Forward team, uh, co-hosts Andy Lyman and Megan Kamrick on Friday. We held a Facebook Live to talk to them about the bill as it passed and what happens next and what it all means and why it is so historic for New Mexico to become the next state to legalize adult use cannabis. We also invited Representative Andrea Mart- uh, uh, Andrea Romero, sorry, who was also a sponsor of the Cannabis Regulation Act, but she was unfortunately on the road, hopefully on her way to a well-deserved uh, little break after, again, a grueling special session, 60 days, and then the special session, but again, joined by Representatives Javier Martinez and Deborah Armstrong. And Deborah Armstrong, you remember we talked to her in season one of Growing Forward, her daughter, uh, was uh, Aaron Armstrong, is Aaron Armstrong, and was the namesake of the Lennon Aaron Compassionate Use Act, which really set up the medical cannabis program in New Mexico as well. And so she obviously has been invested in this for a long time. Uh, and again, this is a long interview, but we wanted to bring it to you so you really understand some more nuance about what was passed this week and what happens next Uh, And we encourage you to go and subscribe to the Growing Forward podcast. We've done a lot of work on there. Recently, we read wrap-ups of each day of the special session, and we're working on some great things in the coming weeks as we track this now setting up this brand-new market in New Mexico. So you can find Growing Forward wherever you get your podcast. And again, it's a collaboration between ourselves and New Mexico Political Report. Hosts are Andy Lyman of the New Mexico Political Report and Megan Kamrick, who is a correspondent here and an on-air host on KUNM Radio. So here now, the latest episode of Growing Forward. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Growing Forward, a podcast about cannabis in New Mexico and a collaboration between New Mexico PBS and New Mexico Political Report. I'm Megan Kamrick, a New Mexico PBS correspondent and an on-host, on-air host and reporter with KUNM. And I'm Andy Lyman with New Mexico Political Report. This week, as many listeners likely know, the New Mexico legislature approved adult use cannabis in a recent marathon session, and Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham is expected to sign that bill any day now. So today we're talking to a few of the sponsors of that bill, Representatives Deborah Armstrong and Javier Martinez, and we're hoping to be joined by Representative Andrea Romero. Welcome, Representatives. Good to be here. Thank you. Representative Armstrong, we spoke with you about your family's history with medical cannabis in one of our early episodes. One of the selling points of legalization has been the potential tax revenue and increased jobs for the state. But while presenting this proposal in the legislature, you said a few times you were coming at this from a public health perspective. For those who may have missed those committee meetings, can you talk a bit about that perspective? Sure. Uh, My concern is uh, street drugs. So uh, cannabis is already out there, heavily used adults too frequently with children and youth. And uh, we don't know what's in it. There's more and more stories of it being laced with fentanyl. Um, always concerned about contaminants. You don't know how it was grown. You don't know the strength um, or, or quality. And so uh, by legalizing it, we can regulate that and we can test for it and make sure of what it is that we are um, uh, consuming. And secondly, we have uh, our 
trying to manage uh, access by kids and particularly by controlling packaging and marketing, um, childproof packaging. Uh, you can't like what happens in other states. Uh, Colorado didn't do this. And so they have uh, edibles that look like candy bars, a common candy bar from the outside. Uh, so you don't know, uh, it makes it attractive to children. So we wanna control that. Uh, we wanna be able to um, educate. Um, I would love to see a lot of this revenue used for education in the schools, uh, for research about how it's uh, best used, research on uh, ill effects on, uh, everyone talks about driving. I think people are driving uh, having consumed it uh, now. So we, we need to figure that out. And rather than just a simply no, it's illegal, how much is okay? How much is too much? And how do we um, monitor any other negative impacts on, on the health of New Mexico and then uh, do what we can to uh, regulate and uh, counter that. So you feel like um, making it legal gives us more of a framework to address these public health issues. That's right, that's right. Okay. And the way this was painted um, in many ways was as a partisan effort. Would you care or would you also categorize it that way, considering this bill was really years in the making? Um, it was years in the making. And I think there's been uh, a number of Republicans interested. And just by the, you know, the mere fact we had Republicans introduce uh, bills uh, this year. Uh, the effort to do this is bipartisan. Okay. Uh, the exact um, mechanism and what you control and what you don't, what you have in the bill and what you don't is uh, maybe the difference. But the interest in, in legalizing and, and regulating, I think, is, um, is bipartisan. Do you feel as the bill evolved that more of those perspectives were incorporated? I, I do. I, I think that there was lots of conversation and, and Representative Martinez can talk a lot more to this. I did more of a behind the scenes, but I think every time that I was aware and people came to me or raised issues, um, we worked to address them. You know, I, I worked with Representative Martinez and, and um, uh, Romero and, as well as the superintendent of insurance and so forth to raise different uh, issues and get it um, amended in the bill. And some joked about it being amended every hour, uh, but that's because we kept getting uh, feedback as people were able to view it and read it and digest it, a big bill. And it, you know, um, the more people read, the more things that they might've identified. So we had lots of tweaks along the way and years, years of working on this. During the debates, uh, these most recent debates this week, some lawmakers raised concerns about our state's existing problems with addiction, and they questioned whether legal cannabis would exacerbate that problem. What do you think? You know, I, I think there's a lot of um, folks who have talked about being able to use cannabis as a way to get off of harder uh, drugs, uh, but they haven't had a, a good legal way to do that. And, and so I you know, I don't, uh, it, it's not as harmful, I don't believe, as, um, uh, you know, other opioids and heroin and so forth. And so I think it's actually a pathway to potentially deal more effectively uh, with, uh, with addiction. But 
Um, I mean, no substance that you put into your body, whether it's alcohol, cigarettes, um, marijuana, other things is uh, completely fine. I mean, we know that from uh, alcohol and tobacco. That doesn't mean to keep um, cannabis off the market and not deal with it. Um, mm -hmm. I, I just don't think we can adequately control it and deal with it if it's just simply illegal. So, uh, and we don't have any ability to regulate and control, um, uh, control it. So that's my, um, that's my take on it. And, and uh, my interest has not been, hopefully we, we raise lots of money. I, it, it would be fine with me if every penny of that money went back into um, public health and, and, uh, and making this even better and it not be a source of some new magic revenue source for the state, but uh, pay for what we really need to do for behavioral health and substance abuse, not just because of cannabis, but we have a mechanism to raise from cannabis a funding source for all of those related um, issues. Excuse me, Representative Martinez, uh, you've mentioned this before, but you worked closely with former Representative Bill McCamley, who's now the Secretary of Workforce Solutions over the, over the years. Uh, perfectly timed. Uh, just really quickly, so a technical question to, to, to answer here is, uh, we know that legal sales start on April 1st, um, but when do the other things go into effect? When can people start uh, growing their own, cultivating at home and actually just being in, in possession? Yeah, thanks Sandy for the time and, and the question. Uh, on, on, the date, on the date that the uh, bill uh, becomes law, which will be 90 days after the governor signs it. Um, you know, and we don't know quite yet when the governor will sign it. I expect it'll happen in the next few days, but 90 days from then. Uh, and so this has kind of become your thing, right? I mean, I, like I mentioned before, I was uh, so so pleasantly interrupted by my dog that uh, this was something you've been working on for a while, right? It was kind of a transition. You and you and uh, uh, Secretary McCamley were working on this together, and uh, since then, it's kind of been your your thing going forward, right? No, no, I, I wouldn't say that. Uh, uh, th this is really, I think, an effort that has been led by so many amazing leaders. Uh, you know, Representative Mc former Representative McCamley is the first one I worked with. But, you know, before then, we know Chairwoman Armstrong uh, uh, had been laying the foundation, really. I mean, we're not here without the medical program. I mean, that's I think that's just a fact um, and not just in the state, but across the country. Uh, and then on the in, in the other chamber, you know, you had folks like Senator McSorley, uh, you know, folks you know, like Senator Ticipino, folks who were laying the groundwork much, much be uh, longer before I came on, on board. Um, you know, I think um, with this particular bill, this particular piece of legislation, um, it is a continuation of that uh, famous uh, or infamous Cannabis Freedom Act from uh, 2015, which I know, Andy, you've commented on Twitter about. Uh, it received five committee assignments from former Speaker Don Tripp. Um, and then a couple of years after that, uh, the bill got a little bit more favorable treatment in its committee assignments. Uh, and Representative McCamley endured something like a four or five hour hearing in the former House Business and Industry Committee after which his bill was tabled. Um, so, you know, to me, this is really a collective effort. And, and I just happened to be the person who um, who took it over for McCamley once he left. Uh, but, you know, uh, we're not at this stage of the game without Chairwoman Armstrong, without Representative Romero, who came in as a co-sponsor for the first time this year. 
and my goodness, she is just an incredible, incredible uh, uh, co-sponsor. Her, her debate skills and her ability to uh, tackle really tough questions in such an informative um, and, um, and in almost dispassionate way, you know, to try to get the points across has been, has been incredible. I, I think that at the end of the day, if, if anybody wants to uh, ask what the difference, who the difference maker was, I think it might've been Representative Romero. Hmm. And we are hoping that Representative Romero will be able to join us. She is on the road. So um, hopefully she will, she'll be able to join us on this Facebook Live. <laughs> she, she, she's got to defend herself from, uh, from, uh, <laughs> from everything I'm saying. So. <laughs> so I just wanted to clarify that, um, when this takes effect, we know legal sales start by April 1st, 2022, but the law goes into effect, of course, after the governor signs the bill. I just want to, that's right. 90 days after the governor signs okay. the bill. Okay, I'm sorry you said that. Colorado's governor, Jared Polis, recently just signed a law to address equity in their market, and other states have passed similar legislation through voter referendums or are making tweaks to their laws. They didn't go through kind of this long legislative process we just saw. Should we expect similar adjustments in the coming years? What are some of the areas that um, you all might tackle in the next uh, legislative session? Uh, Megan, I would be surprised and very disappointed if we don't go back and tweak this piece of legislation. Um, I've said it from the get-go. Uh, I am not afraid of amendments. Um, I am not afraid of changes during the legislative process. That's what the legislative process is for. If you pass a bill of this magnitude and it doesn't go any changes, there's something wrong with the process. So, uh, you know, now that it passed and we expect governor to sign it, um, I would expect us to come back in the 30-day session to begin to make some, uh, some adjustments uh, one that I've talked about often is to ensure that we can set up that rural equity fund um, and also to set up some sort of funding source for behavioral health and, and treatment services as Senator Steinborn raised on the Senate floor uh, a couple of days ago. Uh, beyond that, you know, as the regulators do their jobs between the day the governor signs this bill and the next legislative session, I'm sure they'll come they'll come across things that will need to be adjusted. And so um, I, I've never made, uh, you know, any bones about it. Like we will be back in the 30 day making adjustments. Um, and then as the, as the framework gets rolled out, right, as we start sales on or before April 1st, 2022, there are going to be plenty of opportunities to make adjustments from the regulatory framework to the tax piece, Right, because remember, it's also an important piece of this um, to public safety, to a number of different things. Um, and I welcome, uh, uh, you know, every single colleague in the legislature to to come forward with ideas as the years go by to ensure that this is a framework that continues to work for everyone and a framework that is uh, continues to be uh, a smart regulatory approach to cannabis. We've we've amended the medical um, over mm -hmm. the years. Um, a few times uh, to add uh, different things or tweak different things as we've learned more and as the program has grown. So I agree, there'll probably be tweaks um, over time. Much of it'll be done in regulation, but we'll stumble across something that actually needs legislation, I'm sure. 
just real quick that it seems to be that that, that it's not unique to the, just this piece of legislation right anybody that's been sort of watching this or you two as lawmakers this is kind of how it goes right is um, it's the, the it's a unicorn to say that there's a perfect piece of legislation that that passes that never has to be touched again right yeah yeah, that, that's correct. And, and I think case in point uh, is our legal, Liquor Control Act. Uh, you know, for many years, um, you know, you, and to this day, it is very difficult to, to do things like raise taxes. Um, you know, we have not raised taxes on uh, the excise tax on, on alcohol in, in over 20 to 25 years. Um, even, the, even the idea of reshaping the licensing process was a Herculean task. Um, and, and big props to, to uh, Chairman Maestas and some of the other folks who worked on that this session. Um, but that's not how I envision this uh, framework to be. I mean, if, if, if we're sitting here in 25 years and it has not been tweaked at all, it would have been a massive failure on our part as policymakers. Um, and, oh, Andy, I think I didn't want to jump on you. You had a, a question about um, when people can start home cultivation. Uh, yes, I think that's as soon as we, we determine that's when the law goes into effect. Okay. So 90 days, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, I, you all raise an interesting point because there was interest, there was a continual criticism during the debate this week that the bill was not ready. There were too many unknowns. It was being rushed through. Um, how do you respond to that? Well, um, I don't see how a five-year effort uh, is rushed through. Uh, five years, you know, uh, uh, you know, that's that's uh, five legislative sessions um, that we've gone it's through. It's evolved over that time, right? <laughs> it, it has evolved, mm -hmm. right? And, and, and it's, it, there's an interesting thing happening, right? The bill has evolved over that time, but it's not an entirely new bill, right? When you get down to the nuts and bolts, it is not that different, right? There are some things that we adjusted. There are some things that we changed. Uh, at the request of, of experts, at the request of, of industry people, at the request of the regulators, uh, you know, uh, at the request of members of the other party. One of your previous questions was, you know, this is perceived as a partisan effort. Not at all. Uh, Republicans, at, at least the Republicans who were willing to work with us on legalization, and we know there's a small handful of them, uh, many of their ideas are incorporated into this bill. The idea of pulling out the expungement mechanism into a separate bill came from them. Right. The idea of consignment comes from them. Uh, you know, I, I was I was deeply disappointed that at the very end, before the final vote on this bill, uh, a, a Senate Republican would go on a diatribe about how partisan this process had been. Uh, it didn't it didn't have to be this bipartisan. Right. It didn't. It really didn't. You know, we probably could have finished this off a year or two ago. But, you know, in our in our effort to collaborate and to bring uh, other perspectives into this work. Uh, we opened the door for those folks. And, and you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, they kept moving the goalposts. And, and uh, you know, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm just very glad that our governor, uh, you know, pushed as hard as she did to get this done. Uh, New, Mexico's have, New Mexicans have wanted this for a long time. Um, and it would have been a huge missed opportunity had we allowed a small group of Republican obstructionists at the end of the regular 60-day session to actually control the fate of this bill. Um, so, you know, this process was very much bipartisan, uh, even if the other side fails to concede. Why was it strategically a good idea to separate the expungement 
into a separate bill? Why, why did you open well, it? So, you know, according to, to some of those same Republicans um, and according to, to, you know, other, I guess, more centrist Democrats, you know, there were a lot of folks who were willing to vote on cannabis, uh, but not necessarily on expungement and, and vice versa. Um, and, you know, to an extent, to a degree, I think perhaps that there was also a, um, you know, more of a technical uh, uh, position on that as well, right? Meaning that here you have a cannabis regulatory framework, and then you've got this strictly criminal justice reform piece, right? Uh, and so to us, we were not going to legalize without ensuring expungement. That was, that was our red line. We were not going to go there. Uh, when we were assured that, in fact, the expungement bill would move, um, and as we were tracking it, we were going to ensure that that bill moved first. And sure enough, you know, the Senate... Uh, you know, the, the Senate lived up to its end of the bargain. And, and you know, next, next thing we knew, we had expungement in the House ready to go. And so that's when we decided to deploy and get cannabis out and, and, and to begin Senate considerations. But, you know, th those are the reasons why. Uh, but I'll tell you what, legalization in the state does not happen without that expungement mechanism. It was that important and it was that critical for all of us. So uh, during some of these debates, we, we heard a lot of uh, sort of concerns about how safe cannabis can be. And I think Representative Armstrong sort of addressed this earlier on that, you know, it's not, it's, it's, it's you know, it, you can't compare it to something that is absolutely completely safe. There's obviously some, some impacts there. Um, but is it a matter of time before things get normalized with this? Uh, and, and I know it's not necessarily the right comparison to alcohol, but that's the closest thing I have in my head of, of something that's that's used and it's accepted. There's not sort of like little little jokes and jabs of people that use it. Is it just a matter of time before it becomes normalized in, in everyday life, so to speak? That's for either of you two. I think so. And particularly the more states that pass it, um, it, it that we're not isolated. I mean, we're not isolated now with, with some surrounding states. Uh, New York beat us by a day. Um, in legalizing. And uh, I think the more states that come on board, the all the more normalized it becomes. And uh, when it's more normalized, I, I would say you also have a much broader opportunity to educate about appropriate use, to research about appropriate use, and you're not we're not standing alone. And no one state is standing alone trying to figure that out. And, and uh, so i I hope soon we're past the critical mass of states that something is done federally and we can really take it on and appropriately control it, get rid of the black market um, and, um, and do the appropriate education and training on, uh, on appropriate use and keeping it out of the hands of children. Uh, to that effect, the, as the bill evolved, the tax rate changed. So the excise tax will be 12% on sales. That eventually increases to 18%. But that's before the standard taxes on sales, gross receipts of 5 to 9%. That, that could push the overall tax rate eventually well above 20%, which many have considered that sort of the sweet spot to have a robust legal market while undercutting the illegal market, which we, is one of the main goals, as you say, of the legislation. Why the higher tax rate? What do you think about that possibility? Yeah, Megan, I, I can respond to that. 
Um, you know, the, the 20%, I think, uh, as I've said it many times uh, in committee, probably one too many times, uh, is it comes from, a, a, you know, experts uh, in tax policy who have studied uh, how different states tax cannabis. And so, you know, there's sort of that sweet spot, right, uh, on or about 20%. Uh, most of our surrounding states, um, um, including, obviously, Arizona and Colorado, uh, they hover above that 20%. Uh, Colorado, I think it's upwards of, you know, closer to 30. Uh, when, the, when the amendment was brought up to me, um, uh, two things I think were critical. Number one, staying within that range, right? So we weren't going to go from 12% excise tax to a 25% excise tax, um, in addition to the applicable GRT. I mean, that would have not been, I think, a good thing. Uh, but I think to do from 12 to 18%, six percentage points, and then phased in over the course of six years. Um, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm not sure that anyone purchasing cannabis through the legal market in years one, two, three, and four is gonna turn back to the illicit market at the end of year six, simply because cannabis increased uh, by a 1% uh, excise tax point. So, uh, you know, I think that uh, total tax ultimately will hover around 25, 26% well within the margin uh, th that we had set forth. Uh, the other reason I'm, I was very comfortable with the idea of raising the, the excise tax is that, uh, as I pointed out several times during debate, this is the first time in a long time uh, that New Mexico gets to create a brand new multi-million dollar industry from scratch uh, per the rules that we're setting. Um, and that is a fantastic opportunity in, you know, from the regulatory piece to the tax piece to ensure that we do it right. And so as I was discussing with some of the appropriators within the legislature about how much revenue this could potentially bring to the state, uh, you know, the idea came up of, okay, maybe we do need to look at a slightly higher tax rate. And, and then after that, we negotiate it, you know, do we do it year one or do we do it phased in? Do we do it phased in over three years or six years? you know, what is the exact uh, rate of the proposed hike? Um, and so to me, it makes sense to do so. Now, I'll tell you what, if in years three and four, we feel like, you know, when the excise tax is 16%, we feel that potentially we're beginning to push the bounds, we can always come back and stop the phasing, right? Uh, but at the end of the day, I think 26% is not cost prohibitive. We're still well below Colorado. Uh, we're right there with Arizona. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think it'll be fine. I guess it's probably important to, to note that, <clears throat> excuse me, that the that increase doesn't start until about three years into after sales start, right? So we're going to have That's sales correct. 22, 23, 24, and it's not until 2025 that we see a 1% increase, right? That, that is correct. Can I ask a nerdy tax question just so we clarify? We, well, we do have but, the tax uh, chairman here, so it's probably yeah. the time to ask those nerdy questions. The difference between excise and gross receipts, I'm not sure everybody knows that in terms of where that, how that money is um, collected and funneled and if it looks any different to a consumer. It, it will not look different to a consumer except maybe on your receipt. Okay. But it's, it's, it's a very similar process on the back end from the taxation and revenue department's point of view. Okay. And it goes, what, what's interesting is that we're, we sort of, as the bill evolved, we haven't designated necessarily 
where any of this tax revenue is going to go. So we're kind of holding off for a, a session in the future to um, allot that. You know, I, I take, I take, uh, thanks for asking that question because I take it for granted that everybody just sort of assumes this, right? But uh, the fund, the, the funds are going somewhere. They're going to the state's general fund. Uh, we just have not earmarked the funds in this bill. So what's going to happen is these revenues will go into the state's general fund, which are then appropriated by the legislature, um, uh, you know, through through its appropriations process. Okay. This is also a question for either one of you. Uh, the passage of this, this effort has been called historic, transformative, and a list of <clears throat> other superlatives. So what makes this measure so different from the long list of things that were passed in the regular session? Uh, look, I, I think the entire session, uh, and, and you know, it, at this point, it was not a 60-day session. It was a 62-day session, I guess. 62 days. Uh, and it was a historic session. Uh, you know, Speaker Egoff uh, on, um, on Wednesday night, as, as we were closing up shop and, you know, getting our stuff in, in our cars, he went through a, a laundry list of the things that this legislature accomplished this year. Uh, and my goodness, I mean, you, you know, we tend to take for granted you know, Chairwoman Armstrong and I probably being inside, we take for granted how much was accomplished. And, and uh, uh, Chairwoman Armstrong herself, I think, carried uh, some of the biggest uh, pieces of legislation uh, that we passed this year. Um, you know, I carried another another chunk of those. But, you know, between, uh, you know, between the, the health insurance premium tax that Chairwoman Armstrong led, uh, the historic $110 million tax break for working families and low-income families uh, to House Joint Resolution 1, um, which for 10 years, it's been a battle to, to invest a percentage of that permanent fund in, in early childhood, um, and now cannabis. So I, I think a great deal of credit goes to, to our leadership, to, to the speaker, to the majority floor leader, to the, to the whip, to the caucus chair, to every single one of the members of the state House of Representatives, particularly on the Democratic side, uh, you know, we've, we've uh, I think there was an article today in the New Mexican, and, and it really uh, uh, exemplifies, I think, how, uh, how, how much the state house has come to its own, and how much leadership, I think, is emerging from that chamber. Um, and, uh, and then, of course, the difference that elections make, you know, a lot of these things are not possible on the Senate side, without those, uh, wonderful uh, six or seven senators um, that really took the legislature by storm. Um, you know, somebody else that, that I think deserves a great deal of credit um, as, as this bill kind of moved along is, is uh, Senator Katie Duhigg. Um, I mean, my goodness, uh, whether it was expungement or whether it was the technical aspects of the regulatory framework in cannabis, she was on top of the game every single time, um, even though she came to the process relatively late. Um, so, you know, I, I think it was a historic session. I think this bill is historic uh, for many, many reasons, including the fact that we legalized the right way. We've got to keep reminding folks of that. This is not just a legalization framework. This is a legalization framework that ensures uh, that we right the wrongs of the past uh, with communities of color. Um, so I'm, 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 I'm proud. I'm proud uh, of, of the work that our caucus has done particularly. I should have said this earlier, but if anybody has questions or comments on this Facebook Live, pop just drop them in the comments. Sorry, Representative, go ahead. Oh, that's right. I was going to say the the um, really significant things we did related to healthcare, 
um, not only um, the End of Life Options Act, which I, uh, which was uh, really important to me personally, but uh, we eliminated cost sharing on behavioral health. So for um, public employees and uh, individual group insurance, we can't touch the self-insured plans, no cost sharing of any kind for any behavioral health service. Not your deductible, not, not a visit fee, nothing. That's huge and maybe a huge game changer in our behavioral health system. And the um, affordability fund that uh, Chairman Martinez mentioned, you know, we talk about cannabis raising 30, 50 million um, conservative, it may be more than that. This fund will raise 160 million new dollars every year uh, into the state, the uh, vast majority of which will be turned around to help people afford buying their insurance. That's, um, that's uh, huge. And uh, uh, Rep. Senator Duhigg I uh, had a, a bill that I, I co-sponsored that we can't send patients to collections anymore for medical debt. Um, that which has been discouraging people from going and getting the care that they need. These are really foundational um, changes that I think we'll, we'll see significant. It's not just tweaking around the system. These, these are pretty big um, um, effects, I think that we'll, we'll see in the coming years. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that uh, opponents of legalization are going to be hesitant to uh, say this was a good thing years down the road. Um, but but what are some are, are there benchmarks and what are those benchmarks or signs that we can look for to see if these are if this is a success or a net positive for the state, you know, five, six, seven years down the road? You know, I, I, I think uh, I, I don't I don't buy that argument. And, and here's why. Uh, we know that I, I read I read a piece this morning. I think one in three Americans that live in a state with legalized cannabis. Uh, that means the federal government will legalize sooner rather than later, uh, and New Mexico will have to follow suit. Now we have two choices: either we wait until they legalize and then we build whatever framework we're going to build after they do that, or we can lead and create a framework that works for us and then adjust it whenever the federal government legalizes. There is no industry that operates in New Mexico right now that does not have um, associated costs with it, right? But we do, uh, we do take it as part of, of, of doing business, right? And, and as legislators, it is our job to ensure that we enact policies to, to limit the negative impacts of those industries on our community. Uh, oil and gas, there is a cost associated with fracking. There is a public health cost. There's a social cost. Right? There's a natural resources and environmental cost. Right? Uh, we, don't, we don't end fracking. We haven't done that. But what do we do? We ensure that we have enough protections. Now, whether or not we're doing enough is a question of political debate. Right? But we don't, you know, we're, we're not getting rid of the oil and gas industry because of the associated costs with it. So why would we treat uh, cannabis uh, any differently? Right? Same thing with alcohol. Same thing with tobacco. Right? There are associated costs with it. Now, I would argue that the associated costs of legalizing cannabis are much less harmful than the associated costs with any of those other industries I mentioned. Right? Will we see an increase in, in youth use of cannabis? I have reservations that we will, uh, but maybe we will. And so we're going to have to create policies to ensure that that doesn't happen. Right? Will we see an increase in DWI? I personally don't think we will, at least not associated with this 
particular piece of legislation, right? There are other factors that could lead to more DWI. But if we do, then it is our job to mitigate those costs. Uh, so, you know, the idea, the notion that, you know, there are too many unknowns here just doesn't hold water for me. And at the end of the day, we're going to have to legalize, right? New Mexico is not going to be the one state that didn't legalize once the feds legalize. So we either do it now or we do it in five years or we do it in 10 years when the federal government legalizes. I'd rather do it now. One of the issues I was sort of tracking uh, along in, in the regular session uh, was this issue of medical cannabis reciprocity. And, and there was a Senate bill during the regular session that tried to address this issue of um, the sort of loophole. I, I won't go into the whole history of it. I think I've written plenty about it, but uh, um, basically, you know, there was some, some litigation that was happening and some concerns of, uh, you know, folks coming in and abusing our medical system, uh, possibly, mostly from Texas, I guess, um, and, and sort of using this loophole. Uh, that language is now in the law that's that's awaiting signature from the governor. Um, is that all sort of like, you know, a moot point, the people that were uh, concerned about that bill? I mean, because it seems right, right now, as it stands, uh, if you want to come in from Texas, I mean, once it goes into to law, if you want to come from Texas, you can, you don't have to worry about joining the medical program, right? So is that, is that sort of uh, the folks that are concerned about that, is that sort of not a concern anymore? You know, it, it won't be as much of a concern because you can get um, uh, adult use, but if, if you really, um, there will be some benefits to the medical, I think, in uh, lower taxes and, and um, um, just being able to access maybe specific uh, grades and of, uh, of product that is being set aside and reserved for medical. And so we have um, stuff in this law that would assure that we maintain adequate um, uh, supply for medical and for caregivers and for their, those reciprocal um, uh, patients. So it, it's not as important maybe as it was, uh, but it, I think it may still be important to some. Seems like there might be some, some patients uh, or would be patients that don't qualify for one of the 28 conditions um, and their, their workaround um, was to, you know, like go, go to California or not even go to California, meet with a doctor online in California and sort of this other loophole. So there was an issue with Texans coming over, but also New Mexicans. Um, is there any concern about folks that want to get on that program? Is that just something DOH needs to, you know, work towards to maybe broaden those conditions? You know, I think there's ongoing discussion. Um, you know, the medical uh, advisory committee remains and we'll continue to discuss if there's other conditions that ought to be added to the medical. And I think part of the issue on California is that California, you, if you have, you know, that doctor's note or whatever, you, there's not a kind of a government issued ID. Uh, I don't, I think that was part of the problem. Uh, if I'm, I hope I'm not misspeaking. So that by saying what you had to have a government issued proof of, of qualifying for a medical program uh, kind of left California um, out, uh, if you will, from that uh, loophole. But, um, you know, I think that they will continue to, to uh, monitor medical and the conditions and make sure there's adequate access. And I do think you'll see uh, continued um, uh, boutique kind of um, um, 
treatment of medical cannabis so that you've got certain strains and different um, uh, levels of THC and so forth for different symptoms. I mean, you go into a dispensary now and there's a whole different variety. Depends. Let's talk about your symptoms. Are you having trouble sleeping or are you throwing up, uh, you know, or is it pain and, and what, what, what's the best um, plant um, uh, strain and, and uh, level of THC uh, for those symptoms. And I, I, I hope, certainly hope that we're protecting um, the ability to do that and protecting supply for those who, who need that um, medical. Um, we heard some concern um, in the session and ahead of the special session from folks in traditional rural communities. We had Moises Gonzalez on the podcast recently um, from the land grant community. And this also came out in the debate regarding whether they will be cut out of entering this new industry because of these larger established players already here in the medical cannabis industry. How does the legislation address that? Yeah, well, first and foremost, uh, you know, I'm very proud of that through the development of this uh, legislation over the past five years, uh, many meetings and conversations have been had with communities across the state, um, including folks from Asequias uh, and, 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 and others. Um, you know, the, the, the notion that folks in rural communities and historic ancestral land grants or, or Asequias will be left out is simply not true. Uh, and, uh, you know, this, these points were raised with me as the main sponsor of this bill toward the end of the 60-day session. Uh, now, Paula Garcia from the SIK Association, I have a great relationship with her. We've worked together on, on many other things in the past. She reached out and she said, we've got some concerns. And it wasn't so much with the bill. It was the fact that we had left some of those funds out, right, because of the uh, the, 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 the compromise we had reached with this bill early on, uh, but because they had been so tied up with other work that they were doing, they weren't able to raise it as soon as, 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 as they could have. And so we worked with Ms. Garcia uh, over the course of the last 10 days of the session on a, on a number of amendments that ended up actually in House Bill 2. So they were no longer amendments, they were part of the bill. Uh, but the, uh, uh, and, 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 and I should also add that uh, Ms. Garcia has been uh, amazing to work with. And we're going to continue to collaborate to ensure that uh, uh, the community she represents and, and other communities uh, are, 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 are well taken care of, right? Because they raise some good points. The notion though, that they're going to get cut out is simply not true. And I would invite folks to think that to read the bill. Uh, the fact that we have a micro business licensing framework that ensures easy access into the marketplace is a game changer. Um, you know, the licensing fees, for example, are, are I, I believe it's $1,000 for a micro uh, cannabis producers and a $2,500 license for uh, up to, so it could actually be a little bit less uh, for a fully integrated micro business license. So you could do everything from seed to retail sale. You know, I, I, was, I, was, I was a little disappointed uh, in one of the reports that I read where a claim was made that a micro business licensee couldn't sell. That's not true. It's never been true. There's always been the ability to sell within that license. Um, and so, you know, I coming, uh, coming from an organizing perspective, coming from a social justice perspective where this has been my life's work, uh, I will always fight to ensure that the communities, you know, the least amongst us 
have the ability to benefit, not just from this industry, from everything, right? As Chairwoman Armstrong said, healthcare, right? Not sending people to collections because they, they couldn't pay their cancer treatment bill, right? Not cutting people out of healthcare because they don't have immigration status. I mean, that's our life's work. Why would we, through a, legal, a cannabis legalization bill, all of a sudden just leave out entire communities? That is not the case. Now, in practice, could it potentially turn otherwise? Of course, right? Of course. And we, going back to the beginning of this conversation, we are committed to ensuring that this piece of legislation, the, hopefully soon enough, this, this new statute in our, in, our, in our code continues to evolve to meet the needs of the communities that are gonna be impacted by this for good or, 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 for, or, 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 or for ill, right? Um, so, you know, we will continue to work with them to make sure that, that we, we, we protect uh, and we allow uh, that access into the industry so that every community can thrive. Uh, but again, in practice, it could be different. And if that's the case, we're going to be back here, in, you know, in nine months to fix whatever needs to be fixed. Uh, but, you know, I, I really, you know, I, I, and one last thing on that point, um, I had more calls than I can remember with folks from a lot of these different groups between the time the session ended and between the time the special session begun. And not only that, but we had a full out two, two and a half hour meeting with a number of these folks on the Saturday before the special session began to explain what was in the bill, because there was a lot of misinformation mm. uh, in those circles running around that unfortunately made its way to the media, made its way into public forums. Uh, and, you know, people are scared, right? If, if you are misinformed, right, and you are not presented with the facts and the truth, your gut reaction is to push back, right? But I believe we were able to inform and, 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 and get accurate information out there. And people were, you know, at the end of the day, I think satisfied with what we proposed. Let me ask a related question. I think uh, it, there were ongoing questions brought up in the special session debate about water usage. How much will be required? Will this take away from other water usage like municipalities or for other crops? How will this be addressed, do you think, going forward? Uh, part of the licensing requirement will be that you uh, prove that you've got access to, to, to water, to a water right, to whether it's commercial or otherwise. Uh, you will not be licensed if you cannot show otherwise. Now, uh, you know, the question of, of, of cannabis and water, you know, this is after all an agricultural product, right? And landowners with access to water will make an economic decision as to whether they wanna grow cannabis or they wanna grow green chili, right? That is an economic decision for them to make. Uh, you know, nothing in the bill would allow a large company to come in and steal water from the acequias to water their massive cannabis farm, right? Nothing in the bill would allow for that to happen. And in fact, in the bill, we have some pretty strong language to ensure that the regulators come up with the rules that they will implement to ensure that that doesn't happen. Um, you know, whether or not cannabis is, is water intensive. I mean, I think, I, th I think, you know, is, is it more water intensive than alfalfa, right? Is it more water intensive than pecans, right? Is it more water in intensive than any other crop? You know, it's probably more intensive than some and not as intensive as others. Those are all uh, economic decisions that people uh, will, will be making, but the regulators will make sure that nobody comes in 
and gets a license to grow cannabis who doesn't have access to water uh, and can't prove that they have access to water. Well, thank you, representatives. I, that's all my questions, unless Andy has any follow-up. Okay, great. Thank you both. Well, thank you for this series and for uh, letting us round it out at the, at the end. Thank you both very much. And thank you to our listeners. Uh, this was another episode of Growing Forward. It's the collaboration between New Mexico Political Report and New Mexico PBS. You can find additional episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please, if you have just a second, leave us a review to let us know how we're doing. Our producers are Kevin McDonald and Bryce Dix. Our theme music is from Christian Bjorklund. And a special thank you to Catherine Conley for designing our logo. Also tune in on Thursday morning to KUNM to hear Megan hosting Let's Talk New Mexico. She'll be doing another wrap up of the special session. That will do it for us this week, but we're already planning ahead for a lot of great stuff. Next week on the show, we've got Our Land Back, our environmental series, and we're going to take you down to Elephant Butte to see just how low the water levels are there and talk some about the ongoing drought and the dicey circumstances we're going to be facing in the coming months this summer and into the fall. So I encourage you to tune back in for that. But we want to leave you, as always, with some final thoughts from our host, Gene Grant, this week. Please subscribe if you haven't already to this podcast and leave us a review. Let us know how we're doing and what you'd like us to cover in future episodes. But have a terrific weekend, and as always, stay safe, stay healthy. If the last year has shown us anything, it's that our relationships with the people around us are more important than ever. I know for me, life in lockdown proved that no Zoom meeting or social media tweet up can replace the connection of in-person gatherings. And yet, in many ways, we seem to have a harder time as a society right now, just treating each other with the basic common courtesy. From cancel culture to social media spats, we seem to be in a constant struggle for common ground. But it's not too late to turn things around. If our stories this week teach us anything, it is that we will never regret taking the time to hear from people who are different than ourselves. And the key there is the listening part. If we can all do a little more of that in these months coming out of the pandemic, perhaps we can get back to a little more compassion and a lot more understanding. At least that's my hope. Thanks again for joining us and for staying informed and engaged. We'll see you again next week in Focus.